I'm Tavis Smiley. Uh, glad to have you in with us in this hour. Ever heard the name Ernie Fields? Ernie Fields. Well, we'll shed some light on this often overlooked luminary in the jazz world now that we're joined by Emmy Award winning journalist Carmen Fields on the top side of this hour, a different conversation on the B side of this hour. We'll tell you more about that in a moment. Uh, but Carmen, good to have you on the program. How are you today? Greetings. I am excellent and honored to be a part of this broadcast. Thank you, Tavis. It's my great delight to have you on uh, to talk about uh, your book, Going Back to T-Town, the Ernie Fields Territory Big Band, Shedding Light on Your Father, Ernie Fields, and his often overlooked influence in the jazz world and his journey through the Jim Crow era as the leader of a territory band. Let me start with that. What is a territory band? Well, uh, traditionally, it refers to uh, bands or orchestras that performed in a specific geographic area. Mm -hmm. And in my father's instance, it was uh, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, However, although he was categorized as a territory band, big band, uh, he, his travels took him across the United States. But there were others in that uh, era in other territories that did about the same thing and stayed within a geographic area. Mm-hmm. So tell me then about Ernie Fields. Oh, where, where to begin? Yeah. Ernie Fields was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, born in Texas, uh, family migrated to Oklahoma, and he was raised in one of the all-black townships of Oklahoma, Taft, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. He went to Tuskegee Institute to learn a trade, the trade of electrician, uh, and that was where he uh, took up uh, a trombone, bought a secondhand trombone, made the band, came back to Tulsa, uh, and was working at an electric shop on the famed Greenwood Avenue, oh, yeah. of, uh, the heart of what was formerly known as Black Wall Street, mm-hmm. and was on a trouble call, heard some youngsters rehearsing, took up a conversation with them, started performing with them a little later, was invited to be their leader, perhaps because he was a little older and college trained, and that's how the Ernie Fields Orchestra organization was born. And this was the late 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do we, what do you know about what, 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 what uh, uh, enticed him uh, to pick up that trombone at Tuskegee? <laughs> Is, uh, that's, that's an interesting question and uh, still somewhat of a mystery. Mm-hmm. He had... Uh, he was interested in sports and thought he might take up football or baseball uh, on the side during his college career, but he noticed that the co-eds paid particular attention to the band mm-hmm. and the musicians. And uh, he had come from a musical family and sang a bit a little and had a little piano training, mm-hmm. but didn't have come to Tuskegee with a horn. But with the help of a friend, he bought a secondhand trombone, rehearsed and rehearsed and made the second band, and then was promoted to the first band. And the benefit of that was it traveled with the football team. Mm. And so he got exposure to all of the other popular musical organizations on college campuses because that was a, a lifeblood of many of the HBCUs at that time. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by the backstory um, uh, in in um, uh, the journey that people take, uh, and he picks up a trombone in short because of the co-eds. That's the bottom line. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
it ne- it never ceases to amaze me the thing we male we males do to get the attention of the coeds. <laughs> the brother picks up a horn, so I'm gonna learn to play this horn so I can be in the band yes. to get the attention of the coeds. That is hilarious to me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what 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 was it like for him outside of his his music? And I'll get back to that in just a second. But give me a sense of what it was like for him growing up in that particular era and in that area. Uh, we all know Greenwood, Archer, and Pine. That's how the Gap Band, Charlie Wilson mm-hmm. and crew, got their name. We know about Black mm-hmm. Wall Street. What was it like for him navigating that space in that era? Well, uh, first of all, he was not in Tulsa until. Uh, he graduated from Tuskegee in 1924. Right. Uh, but uh, he uh, lived at home with his mother, who had uh, moved from Taft to Tulsa, uh, hardworking, church-going, um, uh, and was also pals with uh, the music teachers at the time because he drew upon them to uh, highlight or point out promising talent, music talent, Mm -hmm. in the high schools, in Booker T. Washington High School. Uh, uh, His brother was teaching a band in Sand Springs, uh, Booker T. Washington High School. So that whole little insular black community thrived on itself, grew on itself, and had very strong friendships. Nope, those those friendships matter, and we'll talk about that when we come forward, uh, those strong friendships. Uh, this the second day this week. Uh, I say oftentimes, you never know how the dots are going to connect on this show. Dots just start connecting. I never know how it's going to work out. But uh, for those who listen every day, I hope that's you, 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 and you. You recall earlier this week we had a conversation about Booker T. Washington. Uh, we talked about Tuskegee, and here, here those names come popping up again uh, in today's program. We're talking uh, right now with Emmy Award-winning journalist Carmen Fields about her father, Ernie Fields uh, and the Ernie Fields Territory Big Band shedding light on his often overlooked influence in the world of jazz. And we'll talk a great deal more about it when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. More of Carmen Fields right now talking about her father, the Ernie Fields uh, Territory Big Band leader. Um, so, Carmen, I, I am I am fascinated to know more about the band uh, and their movements and what it was like for them journeying through the Jim Crow South uh, during that era? Uh, Well, I am still amazed at whatever provided the confidence uh, to my father to uh, get a bus and and emblazon it with his name on the outside and a collection of, oh, 14, 15, 16 musicians, uh, vocalists, travel from the New England states uh, to California, to the Dakotas, to the Deep South and the Chitlin Circuit. Mm. And, of course, this was the time of the... um, uh, uh, era of lynching, uh, rigid segregation, and uh, he just navigated it with ease. Uh, one of my uh, favorite stories is how uh, uh, he was in a stopped in a uh, roadside uh, market, and the fellows got out and got uh, were getting uh, food. They were picking up the items that they wanted and taking them to the front to the white cashier, paying for them. And two black kids, about 9, 10, 11, came along and saw 
what was happening, and they started picking up items and taking them to the cashier. And the cashier said, they're not from here, pointing to the musicians. The next time you come in here, you do like you always do. Tell me what you want, and I'll get it, and then you pay for it. And so uh, outside, in front of the bus, uh, my father noticed the kids looking at the bus and the uh, a part in the front where often commercial buses have the destination. It had Ernie Fields, mm-hmm. and one of the kids said, uh, I wonder where that is. Mm-hmm. And the other one says, must be up north somewhere. Mm. Mm. No, it's that's powerful. That's powerful. I um I'm trying I'm trying to recall when the the famous Green Book came out. We all know the movie, of course. Uh, I'm just trying to get a sense of how during this he, era they navigate the country, knowing where to go and where not to go to save their lives. The Green Book was not even invented. Yeah, when I didn't, I didn't my think so. Started yeah. his uh, travels. And for all of my research and going through all of the piles of paper that he left behind after he died, I never saw the Green Book. So I was learning about the Green Book much as the rest of America was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suspect uh, he depended on the words and messages of other musicians, his contemporaries who were also traveling and their experiences. And my father was a Mason. And you know that the Masons have a deep uh, friendship and relationship, and mm-hmm. they often shared information on where were friendly places uh, to eat or, or what have you. And I'm sure that was helpful in navigating. Yeah. And sometimes just... Uh, from his own confidence and wit, uh, he told a story that's in the book. He kept the bus had two 40-gallon tanks, and he kept one filled all of the time. And when the other one was low, he'd pull into a service station and uh, ask the attendants, tell them they needed approximately 40 gallons, which he thought was a pretty good take for the average small establishment, mm-hmm. and he would ask them, if he fills up, can we use the restroom? Mm-hmm. And if they said no, he'd say, drive on, mm-hmm. and he would go <laughs> to mm-hmm. another place. So that was his way of using uh, money <laughs> to yeah. uh, earn respect. Nope, I ain't mad at him for that. Uh, you got you to gotta leverage what you got, leverage what you got, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You, you told a beautiful story a moment ago about those two boys looking up at the bus and wondering where this Ernie Fields place was. Uh, somewhere up north, they thought. Uh, parts unknown to them. But I, I, I can only imagine uh, traveling during this era, uh, even as a territory big band, had a bunch of horror stories that come along with it as well, though. There's got to be some horror stories here. Well, there, uh, there are a few, but... And on the other hand, he considered himself extremely blessed mm-hmm. and uh, the grace of God that things were not uh, as horrible as they as they might have been. Um, there's one story of when they just couldn't find anywhere to sleep, mm-hmm. and uh, through the kindness of a black police officer somewhere in the South, he... Um, showed them to a barrack, some kind of military barracks that was vacant, and they slept on cots. It was below zero temperatures, and all they had for covering were their coats uh, that they had, but they were able to spend the, the night there. He talks of another time of 
being in a, a city where they had first uh, the black dance on a Friday night and the white dance on a Saturday night. And they had completed the black dance, and uh, when they went back to the uh, same establishment to get ready for the white dance, hoodlums had come in and broken up all of the glasses in the establishment because they didn't want to drink in the same glasses that those inwards mm. had been drinking out of. Mm. So there were things of that nature that he just considered uh, uh, an inconvenience or uh, <laughs> unchristian-like mm -hmm. behavior, but luckily there were very few uh, brushes with outright mm -hmm. violence. And, and, and touring all over the country, they were able, even in the Jim Crow era, to make a living doing this? Making a living. Both my brother, who is uh, Ernie Fields Jr., an established Los Angeles musician, are college graduates. I'm a college graduate. My father, they owned their own home. Mm. Uh, uh, he had additional property, a uh, 160-acre farm in Oklahoma, and numerous rental properties. Uh, yes, my mother was a school teacher, and that kept, helped contribute to our livelihood. But yes, he provided a good stable, mm. middle-class living for our family, yes. Let's talk about the music. Well, I'm, I'm driving, watching my time here, driving toward his musical impact in the world of jazz. But for those who don't know the name Ernie Fields, we want to make sure they add that to their list. I, I say this, I find myself saying this quite frequently. Uh, I'm always, um, you know, I'm trying to, what's, what's the word I want here? On the one hand, I, I'm disappointed. On the other hand, I'm grateful when I learn of these stories about folk who've had huge impacts that we just know not of. Uh, mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. think of, I, we all know the movie Hidden Figures, of course, uh, and people saw mm -hmm. that movie and just learned so much. But like I find routinely on this program that, 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 my, that my, my calling in part is to bring stuff to the fore that people might not know anything about. And so today we're exposing them to this great jazz artist named Ernie Fields, who they may not have heard of, who had a huge impact uh, on the jazz world. Talk to me first, though, about the music, the, uh, about the music, what they were playing, the band. Talk about that. Then we'll get to the impact of his, of his, um, of his efforts. He, uh, he stressed musicianship. And he was proud of the fact that he couldn't pass up a musician, a talented musician, whether he needed that particular instrument at the moment. He uh, loved musicians, musicianship, and he loved pleasing an audience. He kept a violin player on hand in case someone had requests for uh, country and western uh, tunes or jazz violin. Uh, he always tried to keep the audience in mind. He also hired and kept top-notch arrangements of the music of the day. He didn't want to sound just like Count Basie or just like Duke Ellington or Cab Calloway. He wanted to stress an Ernie Fields uh, sound. But I think part of the beauty of the territory bands were that they provided a training ground mm. for musicians of the era to polish their skills, learn about the life of traveling on the, the road and whether or not they wanted to, uh, to do that. And many, uh, a name that you would recognize today came through the Ernie Fields organization and went on to do other uh, greater things in music, in the music world and outside the music. Uh, mm. Shall I name a few? Give me, go for it, go for it. 
uh, Leroy Cooper, who mm-hmm. was a baritone sax that became the mainstay in the Ray Charles Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Youssef Latif, who was in the organization when he was uh, known as Bill Evans, uh, and later become a professor at U.S. Uh, U- University of Massachusetts. Uh, Harold Minerve, uh, sax with mm-hmm. uh, Duke Ellington. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freddie Green, a mainstay with... Uh, uh, with the Count Basie Orchestra, uh, Booker Irvin with Charles Mingus's organization. All of these came mm-hmm. through the Ernie Fields organization, spent time, learned, polished their craft, and went on to greatness. Yeah. Um, these territory bands, uh, I, I could have asked this question uh, some minutes ago, but um, was there a reason why they stayed in, in, in particular territories? I, I get that they're, they're covering a particular arena, hence uh, the, the uh, area, hence the name territory band. Was it just uh, economics? They couldn't go any far. Like, wh- why stay in certain territories? I think it probably was in part economics mm-hmm. uh, and um this was the early days of the highway system being uh, being built, oh, yeah. and uh, uh, people were able to venture out a little more. Also, in the age of radio, when people were beginning to hear more about other orchestras outside their territory, they wanted to hear them. Some answered that call and went to other territories to share their gifts. Mm. Others carved out a niche at uh, at a hotel or a club in one particular area. Alphonsus Trent out of uh, Texas was the first black territory band to perform something like 40, uh, 40 weeks mm-hmm. in one in a white hotel, uh, a record that has not been duplicated mm-hmm. <laughs> yet. But uh, so there, you know, some could do well without traveling. Yeah. Others uh, answered the call of the road. And what kind of audiences was was, uh, was the Ernie Fields Territory Big Band playing to? White and black. Mm. White and black. And he took pride in those were theaters, those were ballrooms, uh, up and down the East Coast in, in particular, uh, and, uh, and juke joints, smaller juke joints. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Wherever the audience led him, he was there to perform. Also, he uh, had a, I forget the name of the promoter, who had ties to military bases. Mm -hmm. And he did a lot of performances on military bases around the the country. And they would also enlist him to play for the black soldiers one night and then for the white officers (laughs) another Mm -hmm. night. And um, also for uh, VFW clubs and and military establishments of mm. that type. Yeah, we we've, we you've already given us some insight as to his impact musically with all the greats who came through his band first, uh, and and learned as you put it in that training ground, and then went on to work with Mingus and Ellington and Count Basie. Um, so his his impact uh, has been felt whether we knew it or not. And now we know the name Ernie Fields and his territory big band. Uh, I suspect though that. Part of you wanted to bring this story forward because of the obvious. He's your dad. He's your father. And you wanted his legacy uh, to be to be known and, and respected. On the other hand, I, I assume that musically you wanted his contributions to be wrestled with and reckoned with as well. Yes? I did. I wanted them to be recognized, uh, his place in history, 
however small it may be. Uh, he does not have the literature of someone like a Count Basie. Mm-hmm. He did not have the recording history of other uh, known organizations, but he was there. He contributed, and I thought that deserved recognition. Why, why not? Why not more recording? Uh, you know, who knows the, the luck of the, yeah. the draw? Mm-hmm. I uh, imagine. And when he didn't have a recording contract, he established because he's such an entrepreneur, established his own label, record label, Frisco Records, and recorded his only his orchestra, not mm-hmm. other organizations uh, so that he would have uh, those recordings to serve as promotional material, uh, et cetera. And, and, um, so, and, and, and what, where did all that entrepreneurial genius come from? And I ask that because, as you know, so many artists, many artists back then got ripped off a variety of ways uh-huh. uh, because they didn't have the gift that your father had. Where did that, where did that entrepreneurial gift come from? I, I, I don't I don't know, because he defined himself as a poor widow's boy. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I guess the determination or the uh, mother wit, if you will, but he was a- extremely creative and the drive to keep eating, uh, keep working, and uh, a keen sense of responsibility and fatherhood that he felt for the musicians in his organization. Yeah. His name is Ernie Fields. The book is called Going Back to T-Town, the Ernie Fields Territory Big Band. So now you know the name Ernie Fields. Now you know a bit more about these territory big bands back in the day. And there's a documentary of uh, of this subject as well that uh, PBS aired earlier this year. Um, so there's a documentary, there's the book, uh, and all that you need to know uh, to learn more about uh, Ernie Fields. For those of you jazz lovers, you music lovers, uh, another name to add to your list that you can do a little more research on beyond this conversation. Carmen Fields, thanks for the work uh, to bring this to our attention. Thank you for the conversation. I appreciate you. All the best to you. I'm honored. Thank you as well.